Today, I had the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Talat Upal. Talat is a gynecologist and obstetrician specializing in heavy bleeding. She's also the founder and director of Women's Health Road, an innovative and multidisciplinary medical center for women. This conversation is all about periods. We cover everything from your very first period to postmenopausal bleeding and all of the life stages in between. Talat has a wealth of knowledge and her dedication to improving women's health care shines in everything she does. So for anyone with a uterus or who knows someone who has one, this is for you. Let's get into it. So welcome Talat. Thank you so much for traveling up to um, sit with me in person. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Shauna. It's pleasure's all mine. Uh, we met in Melbourne earlier in the year at what I would say was probably one of the best conferences I've ever been to. And uh, we had some fun um, taking some funny pictures and things. Absolutely, the booth. Yeah, <laughs> It was such an amazing forum. And I think the networking was so phenomenal. Yeah. So just for our listeners, we went to the inaugural Women's Mental Health Conference, which was in Melbourne. And it brought together a whole group of, um, well, mostly women. There were a couple of men there. Um, but uh, lots of doctors, psychologists, allied health, nurses, um, businesswomen, really. Absolutely. What a wonderful cohort with a common interest. Yeah, it yeah. was fantastic. Anyway, I am dying to share some of your expertise with our listeners. And um, I just thought it would be lovely if you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you. Thanks, Jonna. So um, I'm basically a gynecologist and obstetrician. And I've had an interest in women's health for as long as I can remember. So when I was a medical student in Africa, basically the very first day I started in birthing unit, I kind of just knew that this was my calling in life. And although obviously when you train in ONG, there are days where, you know, sometimes it's quite challenging, but I haven't actually looked back and regretted that even one minute. I think that women's health is so underserved in general. Um, thankfully, we are making many, many strides, but still there are quite a number of gaps, which we'll go into more detail later. Now, I'm going to stop you. Sorry, am I rambling? No, no, I'm not <laughs> going to stop you. I'm going to stop you because yeah, I'm yeah. so interested. Yeah. So in Africa, you yes. said, so you did your training in Africa? So I grew up in Nigeria. So I did my medical degree there and then I've done all my training in Australia. But I feel, Shauna, it gave me that lens into the disadvantage, which exists everywhere, but particularly, you know, that foundation that I had set me up for that interest, which only has been fueled further um, in Australia. So I got to see firsthand, you know, not only gynecologically, but in the obstetric space, you know, women's outcomes because they didn't seek timely care or there was less awareness than we should have or all those fronts on which we are trying so hard to battle to close the gaps. Yes, so I was exposed to that quite early. Okay, so gynecology <laughs> is all about specialty of basically women's reproductive organs, exactly. is that pretty much? And then obstetrics is obviously the care of pregnant women. Exactly, yeah. after 20 weeks, so yes. yes. And do you um, do 50-50? I enjoy both, but uh, because my gynecological interest is almost bordering on an obsession now with abnormal bleeding, it is actually taking up more and more of my time. So I am giving up private obstetrics soon, only to create further capacity. You know, when you do something at a more strategic level, you want to invest in that, um, I don't know, Sean, if you know about the Ikigai, the um, Japanese concept of what your passion is, yes. with, I, I, I'm probably not putting it right, but, you know, those four circles. So I find that the covered area is actually abnormal bleeding and management for me, for women. So I feel very privileged to be able to direct more of my time and energy and resources into that space preferentially. Okay, amazing. And that's why I wanted you to come today, because really I wanted this this episode to be about all about periods lovely all about it and mm. um, all the taboo bits that aren't talked about and I thought we might maybe start at the beginning so one of the things in general practice um, that teenage uh, girls will sometimes come in they're maybe 15 or 16 and they're really beginning to get quite worried they haven't had a period yet 
all their friends are having periods. Their mom will often say, oh, well, I had my period when I was 12 or 13. And this girl is starting to get super worried. So at the very beginning, when would you be concerned if someone hasn't yet started their period? So generally speaking, Shona, there's quite a wide variation in when women start their periods. Our average age is about 12.4 years. So really... um, if we're looking at a national average by 12 years, majority of women would have had or girls would have started their period. At about 16 is when we say seek medical help. And some of that is actually still within that variation. But because there is a psychological, like you've rightly said, element to it as well, like maybe there's something wrong with me. So I'm sure that there's a lot of reassurance we can provide because most girls, even at that age, will still continue to have a normal period. Um, but however, there will be a small number in which they might have a congenital issue, they might have a hormonal issue or there might be some other reason why they haven't had a period and so it is important to investigate and I and basically you know identify those women that might need more support and work up and eating disorders can be a reason as well that is contributing to a delayed period start so to try and figure out who actually needs medical workup and support from who needs actual reassurance and to say actually you know the ultrasound shows that there's a normal looking or a very normal looking um, uterus we just need to be a bit more patient and we're sure that the period will come. Yeah I had one recently and actually the girl was just like super sporty in that she ran a lot of cross country and long distance running Exactly, um, and then we actually ended up with a completely unrelated injury and within she unfortunately couldn't run for about four months and within three months she um, started having her period. Exactly. And so that lifestyle sometimes can actually predispose one to have a delayed period. Okay. Yeah. And so still on that, that sort of early end, how you, some people have a period and then it just from the very first month, it just is regular roughly every month and they're sort of happy. And then for other girls, it can take, you know, a couple of years to really settle into a normal pattern. Is that still within the realms of sort of normality? Absolutely, Shona. So because that axis of um, the, the the in the background between the period is the end end product that the girls see, but be, in the background there is the you know the cohesion between the brain and the ovaries and the uterus. So. For that whole axis to be a little bit more mature, you can have a number of irregular cycles before that happens. And I guess if they're just irregular, then that's fine that we, and and by irregular typical cycle, ideally should be between 22 days and 35 days. And it's not uncommon to not have that textbook 28 days when we're starting out in terms of periods. But the problem is that sometimes, Shona, the irregularity then leads to almost coming with a vengeance because it's so heavy and so you have someone that may not have had a period for two or three months and then suddenly is flooding so that is where I try to come in and say look yep it's very normal to expect some degree of irregularity at the beginning but if we have very heavy flow from that then that ideally should be managed and it is really interesting how many of our young girls actually take time off school or they can't go swimming, or they can't, for all these scenarios that we can actually provide support and help with. So I'm really glad that you're starting from the adolescent side of things, because, and also the other thing is that um, when we're talking about causes, there can be an increased representation of clotting issues. So I often ask, you know, does she have other, um, or ask the, 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 um, you know, teenager, or, or the mum or whoever's come with them um, around, do they have a tendency to bleeding otherwise outside the periods, Shona? So for example, like when they have dental work or they have a cut. And so you want to identify that you're not missing an underlying um, reason for clotting that is outside that uterus axis of, um, that I mentioned earlier. I think um, one of the other things that I see a lot of is um, I'll often see a, a mum again and a teenage girl come in together and the teenager is literally vomiting with their period. Um, the mum will say, oh, I'm having to go and pick her up from school every month. It's awful. She's grey. She's fainting. It's at, We have horrendous... Within two to three days, of course, she's usually bounced back and back to normal, but they're having these really extreme 
symptoms. But yes. again, sometimes people go, oh, well, I had that and my mum had that. And therefore, that's just what our family has to put up with. But yes. that's not really right, is it? No, that's not right. And that, that on one hand, I feel so happy when mums and daughters come together because I think I've had so many women articulate to me that we didn't get the support at this in our time because that was the generational you know change that has occurred in a positive way I think for the most part um, and so on that hand we do celebrate that there is more discussion around it or um, but on the other hand I find Shona we're constantly normalizing things that we can help women with when it comes to periods. So I don't know why, and it's a multi-layered issue. It's the um, society as a group. And then like you rightly said in your question, the mums or the, you know, other women around that adolescent who have had similar experiences and put up with it, but we don't want the young person to put up with it as well. And at a third layer, unfortunately, sometimes we've got amazing clinicians in Australia, but sometimes we all know that, you know, women seek care and that care is not as proactive as it should be. So it's a number of layers between family level, the patient themselves or women themselves sometimes trivialize their symptoms and then the family level and then society and then the clinicians. And you and I know that, you know, apart from simple, uh, like, for example, non-steroidals, which are medications like Ponstan, like, you know, that can actually help reduce inflammation inside our pelvis, reduce the amount of bleeding, and also certainly reduce pain, which is often an associated problem for many young women. Um, but apart from that, there are other medications that can be used, some more as band-aids, some as contraceptives, if that is also needed. So there are this is a place that we're actually a bit spoiled for choice. And that's why I feel almost, I don't think hurt is the right word, but I always feel very sad often where I think women have lost out on years of their life, of their best versions. And that is why, Shona, quality of life is an outcome that we talk a lot about when we talk about abnormal bleeding, rather than just obsessing with the volume of loss. Yeah, I absolutely love that you said that because I actually had another story comes to mind of uh, of a girl who'd worked really, really hard. Um, she had a part in the school musical. Yes. Um, she didn't have a big part, but she had been to rehearsals for six months. And then, of course, period came on the second night of the performances, or came that afternoon, had to go home missed the next two performances this girl has invested six months of her life to be in the school play and basically she misses out because she's vomiting and fainting and absolutely just in so much pain yes. and I think you know there definitely still is that kind of cultural acceptance is well oh, well your peri period's meant to be really painful and it's meant to be a miserable two to five days and all that kind of stuff and you're right like there are so many options it doesn't actually have to be this way it doesn't way. have to be at all and thankfully shauna um endometriosis is getting a lot of traction and awareness and we do know that of these teenagers although we're talking about the start of periods a, a small fraction of them one in one in nine is not a small fraction but um, a number of women will have underlying pathology as well um, but I guess that that point you made is so valid that there is so much support around we could have like for example the person you're mentioning could have delayed her period we could have supported her with pain relief and with um, minimizing not only the volume, but the pain and the nausea and vomiting and being proactive about it. How about you start this medication before your period starts so that we are actually managing it in a way, not waiting for it to start and then, you know, um, almost damage control, if I can call it that way, but we're actually preventing some of these problems. But it, doesn't it boil down, Shona, to awareness as well? And then sometimes I think it's a place riddled with a lot of myths. So I can't tell you how many times we went sit down and say, oh, I don't want hormones, but blah, blah, blah. So then I would be like, okay, well, let's talk about it. Of course, we're very respectful of your philosophy, but have you realized that this option might give you X, Y, Z benefits? And so I think sometimes it's actually women not even necessarily knowing all the options that are available for them and their daughters 
Yeah, so it's really trying to ask people to have a little bit more of an open mind rather than to have that I would never take. Absolutely. And come in and sort of have a little bit of a chat and do a bit of research before you come to your appointment. But, you know, come with an open mind and ha- have a, a, a an open mind to that actually what you think you might not do might actually be an absolutely excellent solution for you. Absolutely. And sometimes we have to, Shona, you know that they're competing demands. They are competing demands between trying to get traction on the period, but also keeping at the forefront any mental health sequelae, also keeping, you know, acne. Other, there are so, so, so many things, especially for teenagers, are very critically important issues. Um, and it's important for us to say, look, let's not just only look at it through a single lens. Let's look at the iron deficiency that has been caused by this that may be contributing to the tiredness, therefore the time off. And just saying two days or three days is actually a lot of time. Three days in a month. It's actually every time I know that you can't function or go to school or do the things that you love. Absolutely. And you know, one thing I I am always um, astonished at is what a major productivity issue this is in terms of heavy bleeding and pain Mm -hmm. and still unfortunately very under-recognized in terms of how much time women take off work or school and how we could change that trajectory or that narrative completely hopefully longer term. Yeah absolutely so I know that your interest is heavy bleeding so let's get into it by asking the question how do you know if your bleeding's heavy because like you're not really going to compare with your friend So how do you actually know? Because a a teaspoon of blood can actually look like a lot of blood. If you got a teaspoon and spread it everywhere, it would look like quite a lot. So how do people know when what they're experiencing is abnormal? So Shauna, that's an excellent question. So technically we say heavy menstrual bleeding is bleeding or menstrual loss that is excessive that is affecting either your physical, your social, your emotional, or your material quality of life, okay? So, but in practical sense, like you've rightly identified, we actually need some flags to guide us. What do we think, where is that demarcation between normal and abnormal? So some of the questions that we could ask ourselves include, am I passing any clots, particularly if they're bigger than 50 cent pieces? Am I bleeding for too long? And what is too long? So over seven days. So if our period lasts for so long, obviously, especially if it's heavy, then we're kind of almost burning the candle on two ends. Um, Am I getting up at night, you know, multiple times to change my sanitary protection? Am I needing to use two types? For example, I've actually asked women and they've said, oh, I use three times. And I'm thinking, "And, and did you think that was abnormal? Like, you know, to have to use a tampon and a pad, maxi pad and period underwear so then you know preparing for major flooding have you had you know embarrassing episodes where it's flooded through and um, so those are some of the the questions that could guide us if we're answering yes to any of those there could be a problem that we are having heavy bleeding and the thing is that Shauna it affects a quarter of women of reproductive age so let that sink in one in four women report that they have heavy bleeding and We have, um, I've recently been um, part of a campaign that was showcasing some work where 5,000 women, Australian women between 35 and 52 years, were asked about this under-recognised and under-talked about topic. And again, over a quarter of women reported that they have had this at some point or often or always, and almost half hadn't seeked medical care. Um, unfortunately, the level of satisfaction with the medical care wasn't that great. Um, but the most comforting thing in that um, uh, research was that 92% of women want conversations. So I would say kudos to you that we're having this chat because that is what the women have asked for. And is there a distinction between heavy periods that are painful and heavy periods that aren't painful? Like, is that a significant, does it mean anything? Yes, it does. About, statistically, about half of women who have heavy bleeding will have associated pain. 
And therein, you know, we then try to figure out what is the cause of that. And that's also part of the management strategy that we finalize with the woman. And this is a space, Shana, that we should have a lot of shared decision making. So it is really important what her philosophy is, what her desire for fertility is. There can be a number of things that will actually adjust the plan that we make. Um, but yes, the pain factor is important because it could point to, for example, underlying conditions like I mentioned earlier, endometriosis, or there's a version of endometriosis or a, a related um, pathology in which, as you know, endometriosis is when the lining of the womb or the uterus is found in the pelvis or somewhere else outside the uterus. So I'm going to stop you yes. there because I know so many people talk about endometriosis but they find that really really hard to understand or visualize so it's yes. literally like a little piece of the lining yes. has gone for a little trip yes. and attached itself and it can attach to bowel it can attach to the ovary it can attach to the lining inside the abdominal or pelvic cavity absolutely it can even they even can find it in weird places yes, like the, the lungs, lungs and, and really weird places but the most common places are behind the uterus or next to the ovary um, and the problem is that the inside of our tummy is actually quite sensitive it's not meant to have all these microscopic little periods. So those areas when we're having our actual period are also having little areas of inflammation. And with time shorter than that can lead to scarring and then more pain. It might be pain with sex. It might be pain with periods. So I think that in itself is another area that thankfully, like I mentioned earlier, there's been federal you know, recognition of endometriosis and the recognition that we need to have a plan for women nationally and that we need to have funding allocated to this and awareness but I personally don't think that there's been a lot done for women who bleed and so the focus I think this year I'm hoping will also include it's not a competition no absolutely <laughs> but yeah it's, it could be a little frustrating when the focus just goes to one thing and then everything that's else kind right. of falls to the that's side that's right and because I have an interest in this obviously I get referred women Shona so I'm sitting daily with women where they're iron deficient, they've been putting up with it for so long. And I, I'm i very privileged because I work in the northern beaches of Sydney. Most of my patients are very highly educated, professional women, They and, and they don't have language barriers. And then I wonder that what more of people who are also battling other, you know, barriers to seek care, um, it makes me think that you know they, they 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 generally want to look after their health but menstrual literacy wise sometimes there's still quite a significant gap um, even though someone might be very educated it doesn't always mean that they have a high-end understanding of their menstrual cycles or what is abnormal and therein is that when you add in the stigma and the taboo then if there isn't the awareness and then there's also the shame then it just all kind of adds up I think. Yeah, absolutely. So what about the painless bleeders? What, what's usually the cause of their period being so heavy? Look, when it's painless, it could be anovulatory cycle. So sometimes women have polycystic ovaries and so therefore they have anovulatory cycle. So that means they're, they're not ovulating yes. and it's a cycle where there's no ovulation and therefore the bleeding is just a heavier It's a heavier, it's often delayed and it's heavier this is exactly what we also see at the extremes of reproductive life so when the periods are starting or when we're in perimenopause it's also quite common to get those sort of cycles um, the thing is that a small number shown of women who have bleeding that may or may not be associated with pain will be harboring an underlying malignancy or a pre-malignancy so it is important to seek care and to try and distinguish whether we are just looking at someone who may be at the ends of reproductive life or maybe having the odd cycle from someone who's actually harboring a pathology that we can help with so for example at the uterus level apart from the adenomyosis that i mentioned earlier there's another common condition called fibroids so almost a quarter of women will have fibroids and they may be asymptomatic or they may be causing havoc with the bleeding and or pain. So a fibroid is basically like a bit of a lump inside exactly. the uterus, like a muscular... Exactly. So like a benign growth and they're almost like layers like onions. <laughs> but um, they're in our uterus, they could be multiple, they could be strategically placed in that they are 
poking into the womb. And so in that case, they're increasing the surface area of the lining. And so therefore, there's more lining to shed. So there are a number of um, ways in which fibroids actually end up increasing blood loss for some women. And then the other thing is shown up from the... So as far as uterine cancer is concerned... It's about one in 44 women in a lifetime. So if you compare that to breast cancer, it's about one in eight. You would say it's less common. Um, but it obviously, you know, it does need to be ruled out. And apart from malignancy, there's a pre-malignancy, which is called hyperplasia. So again, important to make sure we're not missing any of those pathologies with investigations. Um, so, I mean, basically, and it obviously is less than, than breast cancer, but if you think about it, in a group of... 88 women yes two of them are going to get uterine cancer absolutely it's certainly not rare no it's not rare and i diagnose this regularly and so i do think that it is important for women to seek care and i think that shona whilst we talk about diagnosis i wanted to focus more on symptoms because i think the person at home is more in you know, may, may not know that they have adenomyosis, may not know that they have this or that. And sometimes women have multiple. I look after so many women that have, you know, adenomyosis and a fibroid and a thickened endometrial lining. So they might have a combination of, of as I call it, some uterine joys. Um, and then, so it's more important to figure out, look, is my bleeding abnormal? And so therefore, I, I would benefit from seeking some medical care. Okay, yeah. And then as we move through this sort of age range of women, talk to me a little bit about what bleeding issues you see in that perimenopausal mm-hmm. menopausal group. Mm-hmm. So in perimenopausal group, Shona, I think it gets sometimes a little bit even more muddied because they're also having in the background the, you know, the yo-yo of the estrogen levels that with the ovaries starting to get closer to the expiry date if we can put it that way um so so and as a fair number of women in perimenopause will report abnormal bleeding to the point that again like we discussed earlier when it's heavy then you're sort of adding and sometimes it's hard for me to work out which component is contributing how much but at the end of the day we know that that woman is not living her best life or not thriving because she's being held back by some perimenopausal um, concerns or symptoms plus the abnormal bleeding plus often the domino effect from that which is iron deficiency or iron deficiency anemia so what I normally do, Shona, is that, um, like we said earlier, we, we do have a number of options for these women. It's almost like a pyramid. <laughs> so you've got the least invasive, which are at the bottom of the pyramid. And then at the very top, you've got hysterectomy, which is, you know, we try to keep as a true last resort or for women where we're worried about their pathology. So, for example, at the bottom base, after working up, we could offer women a medication called tranexamic acid. And if we combine that with some, like I mentioned earlier, Ponston, which is methanamic acid, which is above the counter, um, we can actually have a strategy for women, which is not contraceptive, mind you, but often can be almost like a band-aid during that heavy time. Um, next to that, the best medical management is basically the use of what is popularly known as a Mirena, which is a lip, you know, progesterone in an IUD. So that, for some women, will tick a number of boxes. For some women, they need contraception, so it ticks that box. Um, it reduces their bleeding. And for some women, it might become part of their hormone therapy. Yes. So I think perimenopausal women often come out on top because it takes a number of boxes for some of them. And then above that, then we can look at strategies. And of course, there are radiological options for women as well who want to preserve their uterus. But um, one um, option that I'm quite fond of is ablation. So that's just a day procedure. And for some women who are suitable for this, it actually leads to really high satisfaction. It's not long in theatre, it's not long off work, so they're back at work in a very timely way. And it basically might be the, again, the, you know, the little bit of support that they need to get into the menopause, after which, you know, often it's a self-resolving space because the uterus does tend to shrink when estrogen levels drop. And so I find that 
in that day surgical option, it's not only the ablation shoulder, but we can also take out maybe the odd fibroid that is poking into the cavity and certainly take out a polyp that might be there that might be contributing. So these day surgical procedures, I think, have revolutionized the care for women because it then reduces the number of women who need an actual hysterectomy. So what is an ablation? Yes. So an ablation is basically a way by which we denude the lining. We remove the lining of the uterus. The rest of the uterus is preserved. And basically it allows the, the front and the back of the wall of the uterus to stick. Women can have um, some discharge for a while after ablation. So there are obviously some consequences of having it done, but usually those are short term. So in the big scheme of things, I find that most patients are so relieved and the most common feedback I have is, why didn't I do this earlier? And you're right, I have so many patients who've had ablations and it's just transformed their lives really, but it is not a solution for someone who still wants to have more children exactly so it's not for heavy bleeding but you want to have another baby yes isn't that right yes so so if someone wants a baby but doesn't want it immediately i find they generally speaking do quite well with the myrena obviously there will be people who it won't adjust to it would be lying if we say everyone's happy but it's often um not explored as much and again i find that i sometimes ask patients that would you like to do it as a trial if you're not happy, I promise we'll take it out. And we have quite a fair number who say, oh, thank goodness I tried that. That's like, I don't want a baby till two years. And so this will be a great, um, you know, traction on the problem I've been battling. So I guess it's all about trying some of these things and recognizing that they're reversible. So if yes. you're not happy, we can take it out, but give it a go. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I insert marinas and I find the vast majority of people love them. Occasionally, they can just be a little bit annoying at the beginning with sort of a bit of bleeding and staining while it settles in. But I have a lot of people who are at the five years, they're like, take that one out and put a put fresh one, one in. in. Exactly, Please. exactly. Yes, so rightly so, Shona. And uh, we have about 10% of our patients who come back and say, no, either not happy with um, the bleeding pattern. It's often not the patients that have had heavy bleeding. It's often the women that have asked for it for contraception. They've had perfect cycles and now they're having spotting or something like that. Usually the women with heavy bleeding, in fact, the, the one issue that we do have is to try and avoid expulsion because they might be bleeding so heavily. So sometimes I layer it with one or two other medications in their first cycles to just try and get us to a point where the marina then takes over and then the cycles are not a fraction as horrendous as they were. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it doesn't actually just get pushed out with the period. Absolutely. In collaboration with this podcast and my clinic, You by Dr. Shauna Watts, we have a challenge for you. For the month of February, it's called Leap Into 2024, and this is all about your health and wellness. It's simple, it's evidence-based, it's free to join, and we've some major prizes up for grabs. So head to our Instagram for all the details. Now, let's get back to this episode. What's the difference between dysfunctional uterine bleeding and heavy periods? So dysfunctional uterine bleeding is not used that much anymore as a label. It's basically when we can't find a cause. Right. Okay. So we're, we're, we're trying to stick to more of abnormal uterine bleeding and under abnormal bleeding falls like, for example, postcoital bleeding, which is after sexual intercourse, postmenopausal bleeding, which is after menopause, as the name suggests, and then um, intermenstrual bleeding. So that's between cycles. But the vast, if we're talking statistically, generally the women with heavy bleeding are the most common um, sort of bleeding that women experience. And so, um, but the one thing I did want to mention with heavy bleeding, Shona, is around iron deficiency. So I think that sometimes that's a pet peeve of mine where, um, you know, because the range for ferritin or the iron is actually so wide and I I often find that women will say, oh, I was told it was normal. But then when you actually look at the numbers, they're actually either just at the On lowest the rung. <laughs> yes. And you're like, darling, but you're bleeding so heavily and you don't have reserve. It's like Mother Hubbard's cupboard. So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We need to kind of build up the reserve and then some. Yes, exactly. And so that's one group. And then on the other hand, I have another group of um, women who sometimes will tell me, yes, I have a 
every six months I go and have an iron infusion. And then I'm like, listen, that's great. I'm so glad we're keeping pace. But it's not a solution. Yeah, and it's not really normal to need <laughs> to have an iron infusion every six months. <laughs> so let's actually fix the issue first or try and find a solution to the problem. But obviously we want to iron replace, but um, it's not actually fixing the problem. Yes, it's not treating the problem. <laughs> yes. It's just like putting a Band-Aid on. Exactly. <laughs> so you did touch on there um, bleeding after sex. Yes. Is that ever normal? So in general, sometimes, Shauna, it can be that we investigate and we find no causes. But the kind of things that could contribute to that include, for example, certain STIs, particularly chlamydia is the most common of those. So we always want to make sure we're not missing that. We also, at any point, whenever we have abnormal bleeding, not specifically for postcoital, want to make sure the woman's not pregnant and we don't know inadvertently. So we always want to rule that out. Um, the other issue is around cervical screening and whether there has been an exposure to a virus called HPV. And so screening typically is for asymptomatic women, um, but it is important to get your regular screening. That's a back, uh, 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 you know, general advice. But when there is bleeding after sexual intercourse, we want to make sure that the, there's not abnormal cells there thanks to the HPV. So it is, again, important. Your GP specialist is an excellent place to start. And then if we're concerned and it's ongoing, we could have a referral to a public gynecology clinic or to private rooms, like, for example, the model of care we have or other private um, gynecologists. So there are a number of options, but it is important not to ignore it if it's ongoing. Okay. And then postmenopausal bleeding. So we have these women... They haven't had a period for 10 years, five years, 20 years, and then they suddenly notice a little bit of blood. Yes. Sometimes they'll try and underplay it to me. They'll go, but it was just a little pink bit, or it wasn't that much, or, and I'm sure it's fine. What do you think about those women? What do we need to do with them? So I do think that it's important to see, again, your physician or, 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 or um, GP to start with. Um, a number of them, Shauna, might have a condition called atrophy because when high estrogen levels drop, that whole area becomes fragile and there can be a tendency to more vaginal dryness and therefore some bleeding as a result. However, 15% of women that have what we call postmenopausal bleeding will be harboring a cancer or a precancer. And because we don't know who that person is, it is important to work through. And one of the things that is helpful in this space is a pelvic ultrasound. So a GP would then recommend an ultrasound um, and then that can look at the lining and help guide us to a number of women will then end up needing what we call a hysteroscopy, which, which we look inside the uterus in theater or, or as an outpatient and try and get a sample. And then it's not until the histopathologist says that, look, nope, this is benign, this is fine, that we're kind of out of the woods. So very important to make sure that even though it's a minority, even of women who bleed after say, um, after menopause, sorry, um, their 15% is a pretty reasonable number. Yeah. And the good thing, Shona, sorry, is that um, the outlook in general, and I'm generalizing, the outlook for uterine cancer is generally good. So we definitely want to get behind the women where we think they may have it so that we can optimize their prognosis. Yeah, absolutely. And our um, postmenopausal women who um, are, sorry, our perimenopausal women who are struggling with those really, really heavy periods who uh, don't want to have a marina <laughs> but are still worried about getting pregnant, what would you do there? So we sometimes, if they're in heterosexual relationships, they kind of encourage their partners to take one for the team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that seems to be so, easier said so, than that. I know. So that's one. Um, secondly, some women I find would like to combine an ablation with condoms. So then they, they say, look, we'll manage that part of it. Just get us to stop the bleeding. Um, there are others who then want to rely on natural methods. And I do try to discourage that because even though, Shona, the risk of falling pre unplanned pregnancy does decrease with age. It's not zero, like you've rightly said. So it is good to try and avoid that situation um, and so condoms natural methods at times we combine the ablation with um, 
tubes being removed. So that could be an option as well. So some women want permanent contraception. And um, like I mentioned earlier, there are a number of women that might have massive fibroids or they might have pressure effects from their genomyosis. We might have a concern that this is a pre-cancer. So there might be certain things leading up to it or they may have tried absolutely everything and nothing has worked that well. So these are the women that are good candidates for hysterectomy. And obviously that also provides contraception as a, as a, as a, as a, uh, you know, as one of the ticks. And for them, they then don't need necessarily progesterone anymore if they're going to have hormone therapy. So I find a number of them are moved from really heavy bleeding to having had have a hysterectomy and then being on estrogen, being iron replaced, they sometimes don't even, you know, they, they just say we've gotten our life back. Yeah. I've got a couple of questions for you around hysterectomy. So first of all, just to explain to everyone, why would you do a vaginal hysterectomy versus an abdominal hysterectomy? Good question. So nowadays, actually, even beyond that is the keyhole surgery, laparoscopic, and also a new method called robotics, relatively new robotics option. So the advantage of vaginal hysterectomy, obviously, is that the recovery can be easier because often women go home earlier and there isn't that cut on the tummy that needs to heal. However, at times, there might be ovarian pathology. Often, if women are having um, hysterectomy for bleeding, the uterus itself might be quite big, Shona. And so it might not be that easy to do without some laparoscopic support. And a very popular option now is what we call a total laparoscopic hysterectomy, which means that we do it by keyhole surgery and bring the uterus out from below vaginally. And that allows us at the same time, most gynecologists would take out the tubes as well and in younger women preserve the ovaries. So the reason the tubes are taken out is because it halves your risk of ovarian cancer. So I love that you brought this up. So this is really interesting. And I think this is probably a concept that's quite new to a lot of people because they think that they have to have their ovaries removed or that ovarian cancer always starts in the ovary but we actually now know that that's absolutely not the case yes so can you explain that yes so ovarian cancer roughly shauna is about one in 70 women so it's again a bit less common than the uterine one we spoke about earlier but the difference between this and again i'm generalizing is that often because ovaries are so tucked in the pelvis we don't tend to pick it up early And unfortunately, the prognosis is not as good at all when we compare it with um, uterine cancer. What size is a normal ovary? A normal ovary is like a a walnut, uh, and then it becomes even progressively smaller. Um, I'm talking about a postmenopausal ovary now, Um, but it can be quite hard. And some of the symptoms from ovarian cancer can be so vague. And they can overlap with bowel symptoms. And, you know, because it's it's not like, for example, the cervix where we can actually have a look at it in an examination in a GP practice or in a gynecologist room. So, unfortunately, I don't know that we're getting the same degree of... And the other issue is that we don't actually have a perf- as near perfect tool as we've had for cervix. So, the which was previously used to be the pap smear and it's now the cervical screening. It's actually... One of medicine's success stories. Yes, it's true. So we have managed to, you know, reduce, and I would say kudos to the group of scientists and pathologists and GPs and, you know, gynecologists. It's been a very mutual effort. I'm sorry if I've left anyone out, nurse practitioners. So many people have gotten behind cervical cancer, and so we have gotten that far reduced. But the ovaries, which we were talking about, um, is still often not So it's late better. diagnosis. And I always think if you think about it, if you have a wart on your finger, yes. you'll notice it. Yes. Um, but if you had a little lump on your ovary, which is already the size of a walnut and yes. it's burrowed deep in your pelvis and no one can see or feel it, yes. and then it got a little wart on it, well, who, would would even, know? Yes. who would know? Yes, and that's exactly. the problem. You don't know until it's way more Often than a little quite late. it's like way bigger than probably the ovary itself absolutely and because the, the the symptoms can be so vague in terms of you know you're feeling a bit bloated or feeling a degree of pain which you know it's so common to get different types of pain and it's not that that 
ovarian cancer is not that common. So I think there can be that degree of ignoring some symptoms as well. And so back to the fallopian tube, how's the fallopian tube getting ovarian cancer? So the, the, basically the origin of ovarian cancer can be either from the ovaries themselves or from the tubes which are right next to the ovaries or even from the peritoneal lining, the lining of the inside of the area that is close to the ovary. So um, Shona, like you said, it's not really always starting in the ovary. And so we find that if we are taking out the uterus anyway, then we also want to look through risk minimization. So, and I think that is a very important concept, particularly for the perimenopausal women we're talking about. I feel that midlife is a time for us to stop, reflect and think, what things can we do that will serve our future self better? And one of those is around minimizing risk of ovarian cancer. Yeah. Okay. Or suitable women. And so... What's the recovery from a hysterectomy? Yes, so I tend to be a little bit of a negative Nancy in terms of trying to encourage women to take time off uh, because I feel it's always better to be pleasantly surprised and say, oh, okay, that wasn't too bad at all, rather than thinking, oh, now how do I do the laundry? How do I, you know, so I, I, I am the reverse. In our practice, we give um, information. I find the RC Royal College of, um, British College of Gynecologists has some really good detailed information about recovery from a hysterectomy. In general, we ask women to take four weeks off. And often our experience is that women well within that time are feeling back to normal. However, they can be really up and down days, Shona. And sometimes you can feel like, oh my God, it is a major surgery. And so, and there are, there is time that you won't be encouraged to drive and not to lift things. So it is important to prepare properly I feel even Hands though up, I was very naughty <laughs> I had my a hysterectomy during yeah. uh COVID yeah and I was just about to open my new clinic in Forester's Beach and so I was like oh I'm okay yeah. um and I was probably about four days post-op yeah. and I decided to go over to the clinic and start unpacking all the boxes naughty naughty <laughs> oh my gosh I have to say I sort of worked for a, a day just kind of lifting boxes and not lifting boxes but yeah. you know putting stuff in drawers honestly I definitely paid for it for about three days afterwards I was in hell and in a lot of pain and felt dreadful and yes had to actually have a bit of a rest which is quite hard for someone like it me it is hard for for many of us to actually take that break but yes no thank you for sharing your, your story but that's exactly what we're trying to avoid. Not actually lying in bed either, because you can have a higher chance of having a clot with that. But that Goldilocks point of pushing to try and mobilize, I think is important, but then also recognizing and the kindness, just the kindness to yourself to plan well. So that's so expect about that four, four weeks of work. Four and then weeks. what about return to activities and things? So return to activities, again, in our practice, we have a physio. So and um, that's so amazing to have that support, a pelvic physio, um, professional support for women who've had a hysterectomy. So that means that there's a little bit of handholding around which activities, when to start, when to um, um, get back into routine. Often, Shona, the advice I give women is, let your body lead you as well. So if you think you're walking a distance, let's say going on a walk and you're feeling some twinges, sit down, you know, or if you're feeling that, you know, lifting that was a bit difficult after even after the three-week mark or four-week mark, then just let your body guide you so that we are being gentle and kind. But in terms of return to usually by four to six weeks, we're well back to, you know, if the person wants to sexual activity, if the person wants to, um, certainly driving is back to normal in often after two to three weeks um, after surgery. So it, it again depends on the individual person, what the circumstances are, what the support system is. But I do encourage women to have the support system in place so that they're not finding themselves, that their recovery is becoming protracted or painful unnecessarily. And what about if you have a hysterectomy and you are premenopausal? Mm -hmm. um, can you expect that you might go through the menopause 
sooner? Yes, so it can actually bring on, and it's hard to tell because in an individual person, we don't have a crystal ball. Uh, We don't know what her actual menopause timing would have been. But generally, the studies do show that if we have a total hysterectomy, there might be a two to three year you know, bringing on prior to the, um, say, the national average or what her trajectory may have been. But in the balance of things, because in general, and I'm generalizing again, it's not hard to replace estrogen with women through the skin for or through the vaginal route. Um, it may be that if that's the fix to the bleeding or the pain or what, or the concern around possible malignancy, um, in which case we don't always encourage hormones, but um, it's 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 a manageable space is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Okay. So is there anything that you would love women to know or their partners, I suppose, but anything that you would love people to understand about periods and bleeding that, that people just don't seem to know or understand? So look, uh, Shona, I think my message is mostly around heaviness or abnormality of the periods please seek help please make yourself aware of the various options that are there to support you Um, seek help not only for the primary issue but also for any iron that you may have lost and the tiredness and the whole quality of life I think just be an advocate for your own quality of life because it is important to us clinicians it is important it is something that we want to work with you to achieve. Um, and don't please don't put up with it because too many women constantly have put up with it and had lost opportunities to have their thriving self. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, listen, I just want to talk a little bit. I trained in the UK. Yes. And we were really used to working in multidisciplinary. Even our GP practice would often have a pharmacist, we'd often have, you know, nurse practitioners, we'd have diabetic educators who would often work within the practice. And so I was used to that really very multidisciplinary team approach. And I believe that that's what you've tried to make with your clinic. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Of course. So Shona, I have always enjoyed working in teams and I firmly believe that that concept of you know one specialist in a room seeing 40 patients is long over so the future of health is collaboration and the future of health is based on solid digital technology that's what I feel and so when we created our private um, gynecology model or women's health model that was certainly the very important um, sort of like driving philosophy okay so i feel that and 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 the other thing shona in my experience i've had is that i've learned from everyone in our team so i think i'm i'm so respectful of primary care physicians i think that you guys do an amazing job you do the heavy lifting in women's health and so i made the effort of making sure that there's a gp presence in our practice and i believe i'm the only where ours is the only gynecology practice that started out as a gynecology practice that actually got um, accredited by RACGP standards as well, because it is important to me to have that presence. Um, Likewise with nursing and midwifery, I think they have so much to contribute um, to women's well-being. Similarly, like I mentioned earlier, allied health, oh my gosh, there is and every time I learn so much from what Penny Arvizio has done, and I often make the effort of reading that first and thinking, oh, what did she advise? I wonder what she advised. And then um, similarly, we're, we're quite privileged to have a social worker in our team because we do care for a lot of vulnerable women and a lot of pre-existing trauma and significant mental health conditions in addition to the what they have been referred to us with. Um, and then obviously a urogynecologist. I think I keep um, talking about heavy bleeding, but don't you think, Shauna, that the themes are all the same when it comes to continence? Also, people don't want to talk about it. When it comes to prolapse, also there's the lack of the less awareness and that gap exists. So I'm so grateful to be able to work with someone where if there is more detail needed about that or um, that we have a urogynecologist with that 
interest, similarly colorectal side of things and the fertility side of things. It's so good for me to be able to work with someone and say, look, they're actually actively trying to have a baby. Therefore, you know, that kind of support is very helpful for me. And I truly feel that because it's a multidisciplinary team, Shona, it has allowed me to follow where my own passion is because there are other women alongside me. And similarly, we have a psychiatrist in our team. So when we're managing perimenopausal women especially, it's very helpful for me to know um, if, let's say, for example, we start someone on hormone therapy and they're not feeling that much better, or if I'm worried that there's a deterioration of mental health, because you know how grey this area can be sometimes in a practical sense to tease out what is what. So just having Anna next room, I can just knock, knock, and how many decisions are taken in the corridor of our practice by saying, what do you think is going on? It's it's not only the support um, and also the professional support, um, plus the woman I feel comes out on top because she gets the best of the skill and the advice of various practitioners. And so they can choose in our practice to have as much or as little because we are mindful of it's not always easy for women to come. Um, it's also financial constraints. There can be other barriers. But in general, what we're trying to do is provide a very holistic care package and because it's a cottage, Shauna, it's got parking at the back, it's almost like a very safe space for women. And it's an unusual model in that it's a group of women providing care for women um, that we've been very privileged to, to, to progress quite quickly. And I would have to acknowledge our front staff. They're very, very um, clever with various like for example digital side of things and one of my passions is digital health not that i'm at all clever in it i have to put that out there my kids would be laughing at me saying this um, but i'm very interested shauna in patient pathways and how we can use de technology to empower women so we do have a few grants in the pipeline and we want to do strategic research for abnormal bleeding we're certainly trying to set up um, or put in an application for International Heavy Menstrual Bleeding Day. Can you believe it doesn't have a day? Things that are three in a thousand have a day and <laughs> things that affect 25% of women don't have a day. So, <laughs> Whoa, so, so, okay. <laughs> so there's lots of advocacy in our practice and lots of research in the pipeline, lots of digital health projects, a lot led by the admin team, um, which have allowed us to, to basically explore um, boundaries and try to create things, you know, push the boundaries further for women, with yeah. women. So basically someone can come to your practice, see you, see the psychiatrist, see the pelvic floor physio, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. The only person you haven't got there is the dietitian. No, we haven't got that yet. So if you know anyone, come contact us. <laughs> <laughs> Recruitment drive. But um, the good thing for abnormal bleeding, Shona, is that we have launched Australia's first what we call AUB hub. So abnormal uterine bleeding hub. So we're saying walk through our doors. Whatever your issues are, we can actually, you know, do a scan. We can, um, if needed, we can do a biopsy as an outpatient. If needed, we can put a marina in. If needed, we can replace your iron. If you need a surgical journey, we can, you know, coordinate that. Um, there's also a robotic surgeon in our team, Dr. Tano, is very, very gifted. So if we need to do further, it's a very complex surgery. She can partner with us. So there's, there, we've tried to create that whole pathway that basically says, well, whatever the issue is, if a colposcopy is needed, we can, we, we're actually set up as a service, not as one person, as a service to provide that care. Okay, amazing. So thank you so much for sharing your amazing knowledge. I have one final question for you, which is what piece of advice would you give your 20-something self? I would say it's all going to be okay because like everyone else, we all get the few curveballs um, that we manage and as mothers we are also caring for family um, commitments as well as trying to pursue a career thankfully some of the gender space has gotten more leveled um, with our generation even though there's still significant gaps Shauna that we need to um, minimize and level and close but even yeah I would say I Continue to reach out for your dreams because unless you have a vision, 
you don't actually get to where you want to get to. And I feel very privileged that I've been able to get to where I am. But I think a lot of it has been because I am very dog with the bone like that. So I think there is this hashtag that I've unfortunately hasn't gone viral, but <laughs> it's like it's called make your own door. So I feel that would be my advice to myself, to the women I care for and to general society to say sometimes these doors don't always open for us then you've got to go and look and make your own door and open it yourself i love that <laughs> that is awesome awesome so if anyone listening would like to find out more about your amazing clinic or would like to come and see you um what can they do or where can they so, find you? Shona, we have a website and there's a form on the website to actually make contact. There's also a phone number for us. We'd love to receive any calls or any interest. We do provide a hybrid care model. So we're caring for a lot of women outside even New South Wales, let alone Sydney. Um, and we also are interested in trying to, you know, make a plan with them that can be continued with their GP specialist. So we try to, um, even if we get patients from out of area to try and, appreciate how we can or support them to have local ongoing care as needed so please don't be worried about the barriers of distance now those are less um, of barriers as they used to be yeah one of the advantages of covid i know it has opened it into such a wonderful space of um, hybrid healthcare. Yeah. yeah and so what's the website so website is called women's health road and within that is a um, entry point um form jot form Awesome. available for patients yes thank you so much thank you so much Shauna. if you enjoyed this episode i'd really love you to leave a review or share with someone who you believe would benefit from hearing this conversation this podcast and any information advice opinions or statements within it do not constitute medical healthcare, or other professional advice information is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only if you have any health concerns, always consult your doctor.